We turn once again to First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one verses thirteen through sixteen will be the subject of our reading and my preaching this morning. First Peter chapter one verses thirteen through sixteen. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. O Lord, what an overwhelming reality that we are to be holy because you are holy. O Lord, help us to resolve that conflict in our minds in light of your word today that tells us that we are not We are not immensely, truly, through and through, holy. And yet remind us, O God, that we are holy in your sight because we are united to your Son. We have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We have been called and cut off from this world, called forth into the kingdom of God. Remind us, O God, that despite the presence of sin in our lives, the lack of personal holiness, Nonetheless, we are righteous in Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Show us in your word this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have discovered thus far in 1 Peter that holy angels long to look into God's provision of a perfect salvation. Prophets and apostles searched God's word in an effort to understand its meaning, to look for the timing of God's provision of a Messiah. And we, we see Christ in his word. So the recipients of Peter's letter in modern day Turkey would take the word of God seriously in light of all the things that he is saying. And he is affirmed in the immediate context of the salvation which God has provided for his people, which is yet preserved for us, incorruptible, unfading, yet to be fully revealed unto us in the last day, these things angels long to look into them. And so in light of that salvation that he has spoken of, based upon that hope, life of obedience is to flow from it until we see and actually are in heaven. There is something true about holiness. There is an active connection between hope and holiness. There is a connection between hope and holiness. Where there is holiness, there is most certainly hope. Where there is hope, there is almost certainly the presence of some form, beginning at least in some way, of holiness. Where there is hope, holiness is fortified it. If we think about the assurance of believers, 
of, ever, of, of everlasting life, of the forgiveness and pardon of our sins, where does it flow from? Well, when we look back and gaze deeply into our lives and consider whether or not we see Christ there, whether or not we see Jesus Christ and the influence of his work on our souls, whether or not we see the evidence of Christ at work in us, Where there is holiness, there is most certainly hope. Where there is hope, holiness is present and has fortified that hope. Now, there are a number of things as we examine the word this morning. In consideration of the subject of holiness. Think about hope and think about holiness. Aren't these interesting words? I recently met a colleague at the hospital. He comes from a church which is apostolic in its nature. And in the midst of it is the word holiness used. It is a church of apostolic holiness. What does that mean? What does that mean? We talk about holiness in the Christian life and about walking in holiness. And when God says, I am holy, therefore you must be holy, what does that mean? What does it mean that I am to be holy? How can I participate in the holiness of God when I know that I am born in sin, in sin was I conceived, and I actually have sinned against that holy and perfect God? And what is hope? We say a lot about hope here in this church in Bible studies and in past sermons. Hope is not, or hope is often misunderstood. Hope is usually a a wish. It is an expression of a a wish. Well, I hope for my future. Therefore, I I have a sort of wish that, that I'm not going to necessarily actively work circumstances to make certain that I arrive at this ultimate goal or this future goal, but rather I have an idea that that I wish that, or my best wishes for my future are the equivalent of rubbing an oddly shaped bottle and hoping that something comes out and grants me something that I simply cannot bring to effect. Well, those two words are very much before us this morning, and we need explanation as to what they mean. And so we come firstly, I think, to the to the idea of hope. What does hope mean? We, we need to come to an understanding of the word hope. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. There are two, there are two expect, expectant uh, perspectives of mind, states of being, that he assumes of believers. And that is that we are sober and that we have prepared our minds for action. Therefore, if this is the case, we are to fix our hope completely on the grace of that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter envisions Christian men, women, and boys and girls having such a state of mind that they are very sober about life. In other words, they're not caught up in all the the levity of, of personal pleasures and the pursuits and passionate pursuits of things which distract us. He'll say more about that in a moment. In fact, he says, have nothing to do with those things. But rather, he says that they're sober, Christian men, women, boys and girls are sober about life. They're thinking clearly and seriously about the complexity of their personal choices 
and future events that they may foresee to some degree or hope which may come to fruition. The Apostle Peter is saying, first and foremost, you're you're going to be, you are, you've prepared your minds for actions. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not in some way prepared, at least in a beginning sort of way, their minds for action. Have you thought about your activity, the activities of your life? Have you prepared the activities, your daily activities, to think seriously and soberly about them so that in some way they serve the purposes of God? I think altogether too much that Christians are living without very much thought at all. Maybe that's not true of some of you, but of some of us, I think, some of us, I think it is true. We're really not making decisions that take in any way some consideration of what God wants us to do. The jobs we pursue, the food we eat, the people we hang with, the people that we take advice from. I have a dear, dear person to me, a person that is very, very dear to me, who is taking counsel from anyone but Christians You're taking counsel from unbelievers. And so little wonder that this person's life is leading in a direction in the exact opposite of Christ. But that's not what the Apostle Peter has in view here. He has in, the, in view believers who have been soberly thinking about their lives, who have had their minds prepared for action. They are people who think carefully about the course of their lives. When they come up against marital possibilities, when they think about their next job, when they consider their relationships, they're asking, Lord, Lord, do you want me to do this? Lord, what are your thoughts about this? Lord, would you direct my steps? Lord, will you help me to think about this in a godly and biblical way? Lord, will you help me to pursue your purposes and all these things? Sober-minded. Thinking seriously about Christ and about Christ's rule and about our lives. Whose minds are prepared for action. Well, that's the kind of people that we are to be. But then he says that we are to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a sobering word. In other words, we are on this Super Bowl Sunday not to fix our hope upon the Philadelphia Eagles beating the Kansas City Chiefs. We are not really to fix our hope upon watching the Super Bowl this evening and upon a hopeful eventual outcome. We're not even supposed to fix our hope upon transitory things like future hopes and expectations regarding our children, that they would achieve certain expectations of ours uh, academically, intellectually. Those things we might think, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with them, but they are not to be of primacy. They are not to be of first importance. What is of first importance is that we are to set our hope and our our minds, our undergirded minds, our, our minds caught up and ready for action, our sober spirits, that we are first and foremost, that we are supremely, more highly to have our, 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 our hope fixed completely upon the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is that? That grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Simply this, that when Christ comes, 
we enter into eternal life with him. When Christ comes, the validation of what has been promised to us is realized and we come into full possession of it. We are not awaiting for, nor does this verse in any way say that there is a future expectation of a future justification that is still yet up in the air. No, this text is saying what has been established, what has been poured out, what has been promised, what has been gazed into by holy angels desiring to see into the depths of that, that prophets and apostles have opened the word of God, have earnestly searched for, or at least the prophets in the prophet's case, They've earnestly searched for the timing of the coming of the Messiah. Clearly, within this first chapter, the Apostle Peter is not putting before us some eventual uh, hopeful possibility that may yet occur but may not. Rather, he is telling us to uh, to fix our hope on something which is absolutely certain, which has already been kept in heaven, preserved for us, unfading, incorruptible. Something that will not change, will not decline, will not decay, will not be taken away. And so he says, hope. He refers to hope. So because our salvation is certain in Christ, because he has the assurance of the truth of our faith, therefore we must hope. And Peter doesn't stop there. He tells us to have a to fix our hope on him, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely on Jesus Christ. This way, Peter points us to a greater hope and a surety of God's salvation in Christ. As we have witnessed these past few months, in this, we could go back further and further. We could go back in the last few years. Unbelievers have trusted and hoped and have even sometimes trusted in a vague sense in God and in, and in His help. We hear about God in the midst of great calamity, especially after 9-11. We heard about people pouring into the churches. We've heard little or nothing that has come from it. After great cataclysmic changes, after great terrifying Tornadoes and natural disasters, we see people crying out to God, and yet, where's the fruit of a life changed? Where's the continuing crying out to a God who is holy, holy, holy? Peter points to a real hope, not a temporary or temporal hope, not something that is short-lived. Well, what does hope mean? In dictionary, In a dictionary definition, it says it is a feeling that what is wanted will happen. And I think that's what people think that hope, biblical hope, really is. It's a desire accompanied by an expectation, trust, a reliance. But but hope for the believer is something more. It has an essential component that finds its root in God. The Christian's hope is founded upon nothing less than God. Our hope is not based upon some conjectural uh, expectation or, or a feeling that wishes for something to occur. Our hope is not founded upon an uncertain, chaotic future that seems to be made up by simple circumstances following chance after chance after chance. 
The believer's hope is founded upon nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness, as the hymn says. Our hope is based upon God's promise and the absolute surety that what He has said will occur. It's it's a confident expectation of future blessings to be received from God because He has promised them. Our hope is heaven. Our hope is God. Our hope is heaven because that's where God is. It's Our hope is to be with Him where He is. Our, our hope is bound up in the person of His Son who, who, has, who has pioneered the way to heaven through His righteousness. So knowing what hope means, Peter bids us to remove all impediments to our hope. Being set at liberty, we might go on to God. In order to hold hold clearly, we have to gird up the loins of our minds and be sober. And this is the literal reading of this passage, though the NIV, I think, loses some sense of it when it says, have your minds ready for action and keep alert. Well, what does that mean? How are you supposed to have your minds alert and have your minds ready for action? Well, I think literally in the Greek, what it means is that in in a society where you wore lengthy robes that went down to your ankles or just above the ankles, what what would you do if you intend to run, if you prepared for action? Well, you're going to roll up your sleeves and you're going to lift up that that skirt or that, that, that robe until it reaches above your knees so that your legs are free to run. So what he has in view is people who are prepared. They've, they've moved their sleeves up, they've lifted up that robe, and they're ready for action. It's like when you get out of a seat, when you set up, stand up, immediately your clothes are kind of bunched and they're in a different state after you've sat down. But then you get up and you fix your pants, you put them out, you tighten your belt, you get your sleeves extended, and you're ready for movement. And so the Apostle Peter is saying, look, this is what you have to do. You have to be like people who are living in that society who know what it is to get up, hitch up your pants, and be ready. In other words, Christians are always supposed to be in just such, in just such a posture. Always ready. Always prepared. Prepared for what? For hope. For hope in God. For service to God. For obedience to God. In other words, a Christian can never grow lax or lazy about the subject of obedience. You can never set it aside and decide that, well, you see, what I've done is I've believed in Jesus Christ. I have faith in Him. And and the Bible tells me that if I have faith in Christ and have repented of my sins, I have everlasting life. That's true. But what are you saved for? And what what did God give you liberty from? Sin. What does that mean that you're going to flee from sin? That you're going to put sin to death? How do you do that? By obeying God. Obedience flows from faith. Obedience flows and it is a fruit of repentance. Don't don't tell me you're a believer. Don't say that you're a Christian, but you have no desire to obey the word of God. That you don't need to do that. Oh, yes, you do. It is the supreme evidence of your faith in Christ Jesus. It is an assurance of what you say with your mouth, that what you say is true and real. It shows that the life of Christ is hidden in you. It shows that you have taken seriously the word of God, that you're convinced that what you read there is true. 
It shows that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is at work in your life, conforming you to the image of your Savior. How will he do that? Through, through acts of obedience, through obeying the Lord, by falling under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. If you say you're a believer and you have no interest in obeying God, you do not know God. If you say, I have no interest in obeying God, I, I have no interest in the Word, but I've believed. No, you have not. You, you, have, you don't know the God of the Bible. You don't understand His holiness. The Spirit does not reside in your heart. You've not fallen under conviction. You certainly haven't repented. This is not true. So we are to gird up the loins of our minds. We are to be ready lifting out our sleeves. We are to be sober-minded. And, and, and what he's talking about there is not abstaining from strong drink. He's talking about thinking seriously about life. Thinking seriously about life. In other words, we're, we're not, we don't joke all the time. We don't make our lives a, a big joke. We're not always working to entertain everybody else but rather we're working to please our Father in heaven. Or have we made our lives a joke? Everybody laughs at us and we want everyone to laugh and we think it's funny. Are you a sober-minded Christian who is actively prepared for the activity of the Christian life? Or are we given over to loose and unruly thinking and living in such a way that we're not really sober about life. Or are we, are we prepared for hope? Are we sober? Apostle Peter would say to you in very modern language, pull yourself together. Get a hold of yourself. And start living the Christian life. It's not a joke. Christ is coming. That's the message of this passage. So having prepared ourselves to hope completely, Peter commends to us the object of our hope, and it is grace. The object of our hope is grace. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not some future aspect of grace that we are waiting to obtain that is a hopeful possibility in the future. Most of our translations fail to grasp the present tense of the verb here that qualifies grace. Literally, it says hope in the being born to you, grace at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when you became a Christian, there was something born in your life, something that came to birth in your life, and that has never stopped growing and increasing more and more. And that is grace. Grace has been poured out into your heart, the Bible tells us, Grace has sprung up from within us in wellsprings that have sprung from Christ himself, who is the source. He is the living water. And so we have growing within us this grace, and we are to fix our hope on that. Our hope is in grace, which is already in us, already at work in us. And, it, and further, I think, too, it's, it's a grace that is still to be increased, still on its way to us, future grace still yet to be revealed to us. 
That grace that we will see in visible form when Jesus Christ comes again. That grace that he has purposed to send to us. Do you remember Daniel when he prayed in the most ungodly and wicked kingdom on the face of the earth? He prayed, oh God, send mercy. And he waited and he prayed some more. And he prayed some more. And when, after he had prayed through a season, eventually Gabriel comes and he says to him, the moment you began praying, I was sent. And yet I had to contend with the prince of the power of darkness. And I was delayed. And it showed Daniel something. That when he prayed, God sent forth relief, provision. It's extraordinary in that God may delay what we perceive to be in answer to our prayers, but God responds to the needs of His people. And even though you may be waiting for grace, and you're saying, where is the grace I have been crying out for for years? That grace has already been sent on its way to you. And yours is only to wait and to see. It's already on its way. Grace is like visible light that travels many thousands of of miles per second, but which we are told by science takes years and years, light years, to get to us. The light that we enjoy now was sent to us thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, whatever the case may be. I, I don't pretend to be a scientist. The light that the world enjoyed at first when God created and spoke light into being, God created a world that already was enjoying light that had been traveling, that had not yet been traveling, but he created it. In other words, he created a chicken. He didn't create the egg. He created an adult, mature world that was ready and prepared for those who would dwell within it. And as much as we wait for the light that we enjoy day by day, even though the light of today was sent to us many, many years ago from the sun which we enjoy in our solar system, as Christians we enjoy the grace today that was sent to us in eons past, in ages past, God determined to save, to to be merciful to you, and to work the circumstances of your life in such a way to bring about growth in grace, growth in obedience, holiness, participation in His holiness. And that's what grace is like. I think the greatest marvel of the Christian life is in recognition of the fact that oftentimes we come to an answer to our prayers and we realize, you know, I was praying about this last week. But God must have worked the circumstances months ago. God has been at work before I even knew it. Before I had even prayed, God had set in motion the provision of my relief. It's extraordinary the way that God works. Well, the second thing that we see in this passage, it needs definition and clarity, is holiness. We see what hope is, but we also need to understand what holiness is. As obedient children, do not be conformed. So, so he is, he is, he is said in an affirmative 
expectation and a command to the churches in Turkey. How relevant to our own present day and time. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his first command. There's a second one. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Is this not a clear text that that we can refer to in light of the confusion of our present society that tells us that we can identify ourselves by our former sins? That somehow it is relevant for a believer to identify themselves by their sinful proclivities and by our former sins before we turned in faith to Jesus Christ? Or by a worldly mindset that tells us that the supreme identity by which a human being identifies themselves by is their sexual practice? Isn't that the most ludicrous, ridiculous thing and, and, and sad thing that you've ever heard? Aren't we more than our sexuality? We are created by God in the image of God, in righteousness, in holiness, with wisdom. Isn't that supremely who we are? Sexuality is is a lesser portion of what makes us the persons that we are. And to identify and to make that of primary concern to say, this is who I am, it's simply a display that of the fact that you have no idea who you are. And for a believer to affirm that is deeply tragic. You do not understand who you are in union with Jesus Christ. All things are new. The old is passed away. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. He is our identity. He is the one in whom we find our being, in whom we find our identity. He is supremely of greatest and first importance above all things. Peter refers to holiness He refers to us as children of obedience. Children of obedience. Peter uses this word, obedience, because holiness and obedience are are two sides of the same coin. Holiness and obedience go together. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so, as in the negative command or prohibition, Peter tells us not to be conformed to the former ways of life. So he exhorts us in a positive way to be holy. Literally, negatively, he says, don't go back to your old passions uh, in which you walked in ignorance, but rather, you be holy. Same, same, same exhortations from different perspectives on the same coin. Literally, Peter says, you, holy in all manner of life, should be. In all manner of life, you should be holy. Think about the totality of your life. Everything should be holy. Everything should be filled with holiness. Everything you should, in everything you should be pursuing holy living. 
in your parenting, husbands and wives in your marital relationship, in your engagement with your fellow believers here within the community of faith, in your leadership in the church, in preaching, in service of various kinds in the church, opening the buildings, to closing the building, to playing piano, to teaching the Sunday school. God has commanded, He has arrested us with this reality. You must be holy. What you offer to the Lord ought to be holy in obedience to His will. It means that the inner thought life where so much filth exists, that we are to be laboring to be holy. All manner of life. What that word means is to turn up and down and to turn to the side and to the left, back and forth. In other words, we're to take our lives and very much like some child's toy that contains a liquid, we have to turn it upside down and then around and uh, at every side, every aspect and examine every aspect of our lives and to pursue holiness and to look for holiness there. So this passage speaks against an unbeliever's life, though it appears glamorous. Even though our unbelieving friends look like they're enjoying their passions, yet it's wicked. It's opposed to God. There's an interesting word usage here, and the Apostle Peter uses that word agnoia. We all know what that word means, agnostic. It means you really haven't made up your mind or you're ignorant. We're acquainted with that word. If There's no true agnostic. Because as Peter acknowledges here, he says, don't lean, uh, don't, don't, he says, uh, don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And so for an agnostic person, they're ensconced, they're, they're filled up with their ignorance to such an extent that they, they love and they lust for and they're filled with passion for the things which they enjoy in their flesh. I, I think so much of humanity is simply living this one philosophy. Every one of my days ought to be so easy, so ordered, such that whenever I'm hungry, I fill my belly. Whenever I'm tired, I sleep. Whenever I need partnership, relationship, I seek that out. And whenever I want something else that feeds the cravings of my flesh, I fulfill them. In other words, this is nothing but a worldly hedonism that whatever my body or mind wants, I go and get it. And so life, pursuit of happiness and liberty is all about pursuing whatever in the moment will please my flesh. And sometimes as Christians, we get sucked into that, don't we? The best kind of day for us would be to have a day at home, putting up our feet. And there's nothing wrong with relaxation. There's nothing wrong with rest. There's nothing wrong with Having a day, having a week, having time off. But if our whole mantra in life is to enjoy whatever fulfills our our feelings and whatever fulfills our fleshly desires, then we've lost lost sight of, we've lost out on something much bigger and better. So Peter says that kind of worldly mindset, pursuit of passion, is ignorance. It's an agnosticism. It's, it's ignorant. It's wicked. It's unbelieving. 
Paul drives that home in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. You henceforth not walk, don't walk as Gentiles in the vanity of their mind, who have their minds darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance, same word agnostic, that is in them. It's ignorant to live your life for the pursuit of pleasure. And so there are some practical considerations for us in this passage this morning. If Turkish believers in ancient Turkey on the upper Midwest and center and east and the upper portion of that great nation of Turkey are to hope in God, should we not gird up our minds and become sober and hope in the Lord The only thing that hinders that is that we are so easily satisfied with a new car, filled stocked shelves in the kitchen, the latest acquisition, enough relationships, a meaningful marriage, a good boyfriend or a girlfriend. Sexual satisfaction. So many of us are so satisfied, so trivially, and yet God has created us for something so much better. The seeking only of present satisfaction and of present pleasure, and yet without any sacrifice for God, or pursuit of personal holiness and obedience to God, is a wasted life. So deny yourself in your lusts and take up your cross and serve God. We neglect our Bibles and our prayer lives. We're careless about our attendance to church. We think of how many Bible studies and worship services you could have, you and I could have been a part of if we had just simply gotten off of our rear ends and gone. If we had stopped making excuses about tiredness, if we had stopped making excuses about how easy it is to plug in digitally instead of actually going, benefiting from the relationships of God's people, making the effort to be present there, and ordering our days. I know this is a, an incredible thought that asks far too much of you, but actually making certain that we order the rest of our days so that we be free in the evening to go to Bible study, or on Sunday mornings, so having worked our Saturdays that we are well-rested, wide awake, and come into the house of God with a zeal for His Word and a longing to sing. Holiness and obedience to God really does concern the smaller things. It really does start, worship really does start on Saturday, when I think about, I need to order my day here carefully. I need to be make. I need to make certain that I'm in bed in an appropriate time. I need to make certain that I'm ready to go on Sunday morning, so that I'm on time. But more than that, so that I come into the worship of God's house, so that I can participate fully in worship. I might even practice the hymns which would be helpful if we get the bulletins so that we can get those bulletins and practice the hymns and be certain of the songs, maybe even listen to them at home and prepare our hearts ahead of time. Read the prayers and make sure that what we are going to read, it makes sense to us so that we can really make those prayers our own on Sunday morning. 
We are often careless about the Christian life. I've said it many times, dear friends, we make no room for God. We have so filled up our lives with so many things, so many obligations. Why not strip it all away in this new year? And be determined that what I'm going to do as a Christian is I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to pursue the Lord. And I'm going to to start and excel in the basic things of the Christian life. I'm going to be faithful to pray. I'm going to be faithful to open the Word of God. And I'm going to trust as I do that, that God will bring me blessing in time. Even if I don't experience it every single day, I'll see His blessing. What girds up our thoughts and helps keeps us sober? I think a determined purpose to hope, conviction, determination. Why are we lazy about the Christian life? Maybe the question is whether or not are we convinced that Jesus is all we need? Are we convinced that Jesus is our hope? Are we convinced that grace is wonderful? Are we convinced that our salvation really is our primary, our our most glorious possession. That the most valuable thing that we have in this world is Jesus Christ and the grace that has come to us through him. If we are convinced of that, it will be so easy to live the Christian life. When we're faced with a difficult choice, it will be so easy to just fall back on this reality. Jesus means more to me than anything. This is an easier decision because of it. William Granola says, nothing more unbecomes a heavenly hope than an earthly heart. Do we have an earthly heart? When you're alone, where do your thoughts go? When you get into bed, you're not worrying about something about the next day. Where do your thoughts go, first and foremost? When you're alone with that perfect cup of coffee, Or you're out on the back porch and you're just enjoying the birds chirping and you're enjoying the first morning light of the day. When you're enjoying your vacation, where do your thoughts go? Do they go to God? Do they go to Jesus? At least some of the time. Do you consider your life in Christ? Do you consider Jesus Christ to be your highest and best possession? Dear friend, have faith. Remember that hope is never ill when faith is well. Determine that nothing, you won't fear anything or anyone in this life, that no matter how you may be ridiculed or berated for your faith in Christ, nevertheless, you have hope in Him. Your hope should not be some trembling thing that seems to wax and wane all the time. And expresses itself in such statements as, well, if God wills, and and I hope so, or uh, rather we should be able to say, I know, and I am certain in the one whom I have believed in, and I am certain in his disposition toward me. I know for certain of what he intends for my future, even though I may not know how all those circumstances will fit together. I know that God is, I am absolutely certain of this fact that God it's for my good. <clears throat> Even every stroke of God's hammer is 
is shaping for me things that will abide, that are incorruptible, that are unfading, that are kept in heaven for me, things pertaining to my salvation, things which are unshakable. It's a shame for Christian people with such such an object as the, the cross of Jesus Christ that we should let our minds be so dissipated over all the trivialities of life and not gathered in them together and project all our force and convictions toward the future reality of eternal life with Jesus Christ. Why did God make you and I capable of anticipating the future if not for the purpose of helping us that we would anticipate Him and being with Him wrapped with all of our hopes around the throne of God? All of us struggles with this hope. But God help us. This passage also teaches us that the great goal of salvation is holiness. Holiness. The goal of our salvation isn't so that one day we will, we will be able to present ourselves to God having achieved a greater righteousness than our sins. That's not possible. That's not what the Apostle Peter is referencing here. He is telling us to pursue holiness. What is that? Except to pursue the very character of God. To become conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. It means to obey the Word. To love the Word. To take it in. To breathe it. To so live in the Word that we are changed by it. And I'll tell you, if you read your Bible every day, for the next 365 days, you will reach the end of those 365 days in some way impacted by that faithful word. It will not return to God void. You cannot come to the word daily and not in some way be impacted by it. You may have wintry days. You may have days when you'll walk away and forget everything you just read. You may... You may read the Bible and and walk away and be distracted. You may walk away and sin deeply against God, having transgressed exactly what you just read. But over the course of time, God the Holy Spirit will so intervene in your life that the Word of God will have its good effect on your soul. Be faithful. Let the course of your days be an evidence of the fact of your future hope. Pull up your sleeves, gird up your loins, be sober-minded, and get active in the Christian life. Every single day. For every day that you're not active in the Christian life, Satan loves the inactivity that you and I so much enjoy. Our inactivity contributes to the, the building of his kingdom. Our inactivity leads to the obfuscation of the truth such that the masses of humanity miss out entirely upon the light of God. It's absurd to imagine that God would justify a people and not sanctify them, isn't it? And so should we not be holy, holiness for the Christians so that we can stand before God in the great day, holiness so that our hope is based upon the fruits of Christ and of Christ's bringing a changed life and working a changed life within us. God's calling and His holiness are cause and effect. God calls us is the cause, and holiness is the effect of His calling. It's obedience. It's 
a participation in his holiness. This attribute of God, of his holiness, is the one attribute of God most spoken of in his word. It reveals his absolute purity. It describes his being. He is sinless. He cannot be influenced by sin. Sin is destroyed by his holiness. Our Savior Christ commanded us to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. This phrase is a reminder of the book of Leviticus. It's all about holiness. For the believer, holiness doesn't end with forgiveness and cleansing of sin once we're saved. It begins with an active life, a prepared life, a life of activity, a sober life opposing sin. So it behooves us this morning to ask the question, can holiness save me? Am I saved by my degree of holiness? Can it put away my sin, cover up my iniquities, make satisfaction for my transgressions, pay my debt to God? All our best works are tainted with imperfection and incomplete. They are wrong in motives. They are defective in the performance of them. By the deeds of the flesh, no, no flesh will be justified. By, pardon me, by the deeds of the flesh shall no man be justified, Scripture says. So why is holiness important? These reasons, without it, no one will see the Lord. That's what Jesus said. That's what God affirms in his word. Because the voice of God in scripture clearly commands it. You be holy as I am holy. It's also the great one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into this world. He gave himself for us, Titus 2.14, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous for good works. Holiness is important because it contradicts Scripture. To speak of men being saved from the guilt of sin without being at the same time saved from its dominion in our hearts, are believers said to be elect? Through sanctification of the Spirit. Are they chosen? Then they are chosen to be holy. Are they called? It's a holy calling. Are you afflicted? It's because God intends for you to share and be a partaker of his holiness. Jesus is a complete Savior. He has not come merely to take away the guilt of a believer's sin, but he breaks its power. It's also because holiness is important because it's the only sound evidence we have of our saving faith in Jesus Christ. Can I look at my life and Look down into my decisions day by day and see whether or not Christ resides there. Can I see whether or not God is present in my life, whether or not I've thought about the Lord? Can I see Jesus at work in me? Holiness is important because it's the only proof that we love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. The clear implication is if we, if we don't love the Lord, we will not keep his commandments. We will not obey the Lord. And the things which are important to God will not be important to us. But if we love the Lord, the things which are important to him will be important to us. We must be very, very cold or very, very unloving if we think that of all that Jesus suffered and yet cling to those, yet nonetheless we cling to those sins for which that suffering was undertaken. We must hate sin and labor to be rid of it. 
Now let me, in conclusion, recognize that none of us is perfectly holy in this life. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, which we've been going through on Wednesday evening, says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? After having confessed that the good that I would do, I do not do, and the evil that I would not do, I do. We live in one of the most ungodly of nations. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us awake and sleep no more. Don't, don't, don't be half asleep as a Christian any longer. Be sober-minded. Gird up the loins of your mind for activity and serve the Lord. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit and in perfect holiness in the fear of God. Would you become holy? Would you be a new creature? You can, you can do nothing unless you empty yourself of all your own labor and toil and imagined ideas that somehow I can achieve righteousness before God. It'll never happen. It's like the inevitable diet. I'm going to put off the diet until tomorrow, but I believe that ultimately in the future I'm going to lose some weight. It'll never happen because you put it off till tomorrow. It's just like personal holiness and achieving a righteousness with God in the future. It's not going to happen because today you're still sinning. I'm still sinning. It keeps happening. And each day is a new failure and each day is a a new reality or a new conclusion that I'm never going to reach it. I'm never going to make it. Wretched person that I am, how can I do this? I can do nothing except empty myself and look to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him to lead me. You make no progress in holiness until you feel your sin and weakness and flee to Him. We try to do it ourselves, but what a sad work we make of it. Isn't it true? We toil and labor and turn over new leaves. We teach old dogs new tricks. We make new changes. If there's nothing bettered, we only worsen ourselves. We run and labor in vain and we're building up a wall in a house of sand. We we bail water out of a leaky vessel. We begin at the wrong end, start at the right end. In Christ, I can do all things. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. Without Christ, we can do nothing. Would you be holy? Go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't wait. Go this very day. Don't make yourself ready. Go with nothing at all and say, I lack righteousness in myself. I have no holiness apart from you. Lord God Almighty, would you be my holiness? Give me of the righteousness of Christ. And would you work in me to enable me more and more day by day, little by little, to die to sin and live to righteousness? May God help us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would lead us to this reality that we live, yet not we ourselves, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. Therefore, help us, help us to live each day in your Son. To each day look to him for the holiness without which we will never see you. Take away from us our vain hopes of a worldly righteousness. 
of a holiness according to our standard and show us that holiness alone comes from you, that you alone are the one who enables and helps us day by day to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Teach us how to deny ourselves, great God in heaven, holy God. Teach us how to obey your word in all things, to ask of every decision, is this pleasing to my Father in heaven? To take up your word daily, trusting and believing, to gird up our loins, to pull up our sleeves, and be active in service to God. Help us, O oh God, to put, place our hope completely on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what a ridiculous need to bring, what, what a ridiculous thing for us to have to ask you for that, Lord. Should we not look out on the world in which we live today and say, there is no hope. I am convinced of that fact. There is no hope except for in Christ Jesus. And yet we continue to hope in a world that is lost. We continue to bound up our hopes in worldly things and pleasures. Lord, teach us that there is no hope apart from you and teach us to completely hope in our God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.